BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Dr. Will Cole, leading functional medicine expert and best-selling author. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Will Cole, and welcome to the art of being well. I am a leading functional medicine practitioner. I started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world over a decade ago. So from sunup to sundown, I get to be a part of people's health journey, and we drop ship labs wherever they're at to give, provide them a functional medicine perspective on why they're struggling with their health issues. We deal a lot with people with autoimmune problems, people with different inflammatory issues, digestive problems, things like anxiety, depression, fatigue, brain fog, people with metabolic hormonal problems, and oftentimes a confluence of those factors. It's my passion to find out what are the root components of why they're feeling the way that they are feeling and giving them tools to have agency over their health and to start reclaiming their birthright, reclaiming their health. And I take that extremely seriously. So I've written a few books about these topics as well. My first book is called Ketotarian. It's a clean ketogenic way of eating, a lifestyle, a cyclical ketotarian approach, a mostly plant-based ketogenic approach. Second book is called The Inflammation Spectrum. And my newest book is called Intuitive Fasting. Have to check out that book. I loved writing it so much. Anyways, you can learn more about my clinical practice as well as the books and tons of free content at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. Let's get to today's guest. She is a freaking legend. Her name is Nicole LaPera. Dr. Nicole LaPera was trained in clinical psychology at Cornell University and the New School for Social Research. She also studied at the Philadelphia School of Psychoanalysis. As a clinical psychologist in private practice, Dr. Nicole often found herself frustrated by the limitations of traditional psychotherapy. Wanting more for her patients and for herself, she began a journey to develop a united philosophy of mental, physical, and spiritual health that equips people with the tools necessary to heal themselves. She's the creator of the hashtag self-healers movement, where people from around the world are joining together in community to take healing into their own hands. Her first book, How to Do the Work, is so good. 
and it's out right now. So make sure to check that out. But if you don't know her by her name, Dr. Nicola Pera, believe me, you will very soon as this book blows up undoubtedly. She is also known on social media as the holistic psychologist. I'm sure you guys have seen that account. She is an online phenomenon with more than 2 million Instagram followers. And she just came out with this brand new book. It's this revolutionary approach to healing that harnesses the power of the self to produce lasting change. The protocol she talks about in this book, and we talk about it in today's episode in detail, of this concept of how to do the work, she offers this, this manifesto for self-healing as well as an essential guide to creating a more vibrant, authentic, and joyful life. Drawing on the latest research from a diversity of scientific fields and healing modalities, Dr. LaPera helps us recognize how adverse experiences in trauma and childhood live with us, resulting in whole body dysfunction. We talk about this trauma inflammatory connection as far as my, in my side of things in functional medicine, and then she's dealing it with the mental, emotional, spiritual side of things, but how this activates harmful stress responses that keep us stuck, engaging in patterns of codependency, emotional immaturity, and trauma bonds. Unless addressed, these self-sabotaging behaviors can quickly become cyclical, leaving people feeling unhappy, unfulfilled, and unwell with their health. You do not want to miss this conversation. Share it with people that you love. It, it will be transformational. All right, let's get to it. My conversation with Dr. Nicole LaPera. Nicole, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Will. I... I haven't told you this yet, but we've been social media friends, acquaintances for a long time. And I've looked from that lens uh, at your work over the years and I've just been a big fan of what you're putting out into the world and the, the movement and the conversations that you're starting. And I also, on a personal level, I I feel like we're like, I, I, I get you on like a soul level. I don't know. It probably sounds to, to he, weird <laughs> no. to hear it, but like what you do and, and who you are resonates with me very much. So, so I'm excited that we're talking today. Same. A little, do you know that I've been watching your work as well? And you've been really impactful in terms of the, the body piece of the holistic work that I now do, which was mm -hmm. largely absent. Um, and for my own personal journey, Will, that was the most, one of the most outside of consciousness, which I talk about a lot kind of in tandem, that was one of the most impactful things is really understanding the body piece of things I would say was one of the most impactful shift or pivot points in terms of working the way that I do now. Yeah, I saw that through your book, you you really talking and bringing these two worlds together. There's such, a, I mean, they're really two sides of the same coin. And I love that you are bringing that and highlighting that. And we'll talk about it all today. But your book is beautiful. And I, let me just give the title, How to Do the Work. And I love the subtitle here. Recognize your patterns, heal from your past, and create yourself. And that just says everything, right? I mean, it's such, such beautifully, succinctly put. But let's start uh, at the beginning, holistic psychology. Define that for people. What does that mean? And tell me about the ethos of your work. Absolutely. So what holistic psychology means to me is honoring the whole self, what do I mean when I say the whole self? Um, I'm of the belief that we are an interconnected being, right? We have a physical body. We also have an emotional body or an energetic body. And I'm of the belief that we have 
the indescribable other thing that we all, I think, is very elusive to many of us, the mm-hmm. maybe spiritual, the, the essence that makes us us. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't always practice this way. I came very much through a traditional system. And I think a lot of us that are trained in medical or in the psychological field, um, the way we were trained was very much separate. Um, obviously, I went to school to be a clinical psychologist, so I learned about the mind, how the mind works. Um, but what was largely absent from that training was the role of the body, or again, that role of that spiritual essence. So I came to work in this more holistic way through years of myself being in the system as a patient, as someone who has had anxiety as long as I can remember. I was a little girl scared of the world who became the adult waiting for the next bad thing to happen. Um, so I sat on both sides of the couch. And then, of course, I had the private practice. I had the patients that would come to me week after week, month after month, year after year. And after several years of that, I started to become really disempowered right alongside many of my clients, my patients, actually, because what I came to find is that none of us were really getting better, myself included. Mm -hmm. Um, And it took, actually, the culmination of some physical symptoms So I'm someone who very much had gut issues as long as I can remember. I know a lot of us do when we suffer with anxiety. Those two go hand in hand. I had kind of cognitive memory issues. Brain fog, I think, is something that we now understand. So I suffered those things. And again, I thought that was just part of my genetics, what I was Mm -hmm. given in life from my family, because I saw that lineage in my family. And it took until... Those symptoms actually, in addition to me feeling really powerless, really disempowered and really wondering what kind of therapist I was, um, it took until my symptoms, my physical symptoms, my memory issues got so bad, I started to forget what I was saying mid-sentence. And I actually started to faint out of nowhere. I started to lose consciousness. So at that point, scared, quite honestly, I went online, as a lot of us do, to try to find out what the heck was wrong with me. And what I met online at this point was a whole new world of science, Will, that I had never learned in school. So contrary to what I was taught and why I referenced genetics earlier, what many of us are taught is that we're born with these, you know, this genetics in us, this DNA, and we don't have really a choice. And so for me, I saw anxiety in my family. I saw these digestive issues in my family. I saw sleep issues in my family. I saw it all. Why was I to think that I wasn't just genetically gifted to have those same experiences? Mm-hmm. What I learned when I went online, really to self-diagnose, as many of us do, I saw this whole new world of science and I saw people like yourself talking about, wait a minute, yes, we have genetics, we have genes that we're given at birth, gifted, if you will, from our families, our lineages, but we have choice. There's a new world of epigenetics. And so from that moment, this was the first time, this started with me personally, that I even entertained a possible conversation within myself around healing. For me, I was like my clients. I thought it was just about managing. How can I manage my anxiety to make life bearable enough? Mm -hmm. And by that point, if I'm honest, I wasn't managing well. And so what I came to realize, and once I came to realize that there were some underlying causes, I went and I investigated. And slowly but surely, all of these things that I lived my life with started to, to fade away. And that's when I really understood the importance of working holistically. This episode is brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. Everything from coffee to toilet paper and shampoo to pet food. Public Goods is your new everything store, thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. 
Rather than buying from a bunch of single product brands, public good members can buy all of their premium essentials in one place with one beautiful streamlined aesthetic. I love how, A, they're clean products, but I like how nice and simple they look in your home or they're in my functional medicine center. Uh, I, we love their hand soaps. We love their cleaning products, their surface cleaners. I am a neat freak, so I'm always cleaning my office uh, and I use public goods and love it so much. There's no bright colors and mismatched packaging. Everything looks clean uh, as far as the label is concerned, but it's also clean ingredients as well. Public Goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly, and innovative products. They ethically source and obsessively develop each of their products to be free of unhealthy ingredients and harmful additives, still common on drug and grocery store shelves. They are committed to making their products healthy and safe for humans, animals, and the environment. Knowing what's in your products and where they come from is super important. Small changes in the way we shop can make a big impact on personal health and the world at large. They use a membership model to keep costs low and pass on even more savings to their customers. Best of all, you can make your first purchase with no obligation. They plant one tree for every order placed and incorporate sustainability into every part of the company. Join hundreds of thousands of others who've switched to their new everything store. We worked out an awesome deal just for the art of being well listeners. Receive $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They are so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again that they are giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash Will Cole or use code Will Cole at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash Will Cole, W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E to receive $15 off your first order. So you talked about your story and your journey into this field of holistic psychology. Um, and we're fellow Pennsylvanians here, right? I mean, we are. you're from the <laughs> other side of the state. I'm from Pittsburgh. You're from Philadelphia. The only uh, other place that really exists in Pennsylvania. <laughs> it's like kind of our two cities. And then where else? <laughs> yeah. Is it, do you find that to be the case? Maybe not being from Philadelphia as people, especially Californians, but a lot of people, they will conflate Philadelphia with Pennsylvania. And I'll be from Pittsburgh, which is like the lesser known of the two of the two cities is they'll say, oh, you're from Philadelphia. What they mean is Pennsylvania or Pittsburgh, but it's all the P words I think people are getting confused with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, I actually come from Philadelphia. So something I learned too, when you live in the surrounding areas, you just kind of group yourself in as being from the epicenter of Philadelphia, just <laughs> yeah. as a reference point. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Same, same here. Same here for Pittsburgh, for sure. So you talk about your early days as a kid and your background growing up in Philadelphia. And you also talk about very candidly on social media and in the book about trauma. And specifically, I love this part of the book where you mention how trauma is really a misunderstood concept. Why is trauma misunderstood? And when you talk about widening the definition of trauma as well, so I'd love to talk about that. Yeah, trauma, I believe, so let, let's just go back in time in terms of our study of trauma. 
Um, we, trauma didn't really even enter the map in the psychological world until the 90s when we had that very groundbreaking ACEs study, which I think a lot of us might have heard of, adverse childhood experiences scale. Essentially, at that time, what we came to realize, you know, via experimentation is that things that happen in childhood, um, what we at that point came to know is the big T of trauma instances of sexual or emotional abuse or neglect, um, having a parent who's severely mentally ill or who, who is incarcerated. I believe there's around you know, seven to 10 points on that scale. And what we came to realize by studying this trauma in childhood and then by following the effects of that trauma into adulthood in the 90s, it took until the 90s to realize that there is impact, that we carry, whether it's psychological or even more interestingly, here's where the body comes in a bit, physical impacts later in life. Um, so that was groundbreaking because this is where we really are beginning to understand. Obviously, in the psychological field, I know a big joke is, oh, our childhood, right? And how does our childhood affect us? Here, for the first time, we're really seeing some of the ways our childhood affects us. Mm -hmm. I read the study. I looked at it. I, of course, took the ACEs scale. I scored a one. Upwards of 60, 70% of the population scored a one. Quite simply, that's not very high. What mm -hmm. I came to realize working, though, with individuals who scored much higher, who you know, blew my one out of the water, scored upwards of 10 on this ACEs scale in all different contexts. I wrote, I worked with people incarcerated in substance abuse treatment facilities, in inpatient units, kind of across the board. I saw the same patterns in myself as I did in these people, relationship difficulties. I was a bit confused. I could understand why I was struggling in these same ways that, you know, so many other people who had it, quote unquote, so much worse were struggling. Mm -hmm. So what I came to realize through my work is that there's many other things that impact us that happen early in life, even from our, our core essence, ourself, that impact us later in life. So what I've come to realize is that quite universally, and of course, this was once I began to talk about this online and I met a lot of other people scoring very low on this ACEs scale, struggling still very much so in their adult lives, you know, it really confirmed this need to, like I say, expand the definition, to understand mm -hmm. all of the things that have happened to us in childhood that mm -hmm. might still be impacting us in adulthood. And you, you profile in the book uh, these different childhood archetypes, these childhood trauma archetypes. And obviously people can read the book to get the details of it. But I found this very fascinating. And I guess someone not directly in this space so much, I, I was very informative for me. But can you touch upon some of these archetypes that people can have? Absolutely. So what an archetype is, just to generally define it, right, they're categories. So when, when I talk, because I, I do work quite universally you know, for the collective, it's really helpful, right, to look at kind of category, categorical ways of being in particular. So let's just go back in time to kind of understand what I mean when I talk about where these, these ways of being kind of come out of. As a human infant, we are born into a state of complete dependency, Quite simply, we can't meet our needs on our own. We can't physically take care of ourselves. You need another caregiving figure to feed our body, to help our body, to regulate emotionally, right? We can't take care of ourselves. We are in need of another human. So what we do is we're actually wired, as we say, to connect. We're genetically, you know, kind of open and receptive for these relationships. From this state of need, however, because we're so dependent, and we're also so incredibly adaptive, what begins to happen is we begin to modify our way of being. Of course, as we become, you know, toddlerhood and we have our own little personalities and we start to relate to others, this is where this really comes into play. A lot of us might resonate with 
we become the caretaker, the mommy's little helper, daddy's little helper, right? The man of the house. All of these roles that we begin to assume, in essence, as our best attempt to get our needs met to the best of our ability. Understanding that we're all born into a system of other humans that were just as impacted from their past generations as we are. So what these archetypes then become, the ways of being that we begin to practice in childhood, we don't really, most of us at least, we don't evolve out of them. We become the caretaking child, mommy's little helper, who's now the caretaking adult running around tending to all of my friendships. So in the book, I outline different archetypes. For some of us, multiple um, resonate. For others, you know, one really comes in strong. And why we talk about archetypes is because I'm of the belief that when we're playing a role, we're doing our whole being a disservice because we are so much more than that one role that we're playing. Furthermore, some of us in assuming the role are actually doing that whole being a disservice, right? We're squashing emotions that aren't appropriate for that role, or, you know, we're only modifying the way we show up to make sure that we're being that caretaker that that person or so we believe needs us to be. So roles that we assume in childhood, and we can see this as we look back, a lot of us do seem see similar patterns in the way we relate in our relationships. Yeah, beautifully said. And on page 58 of the book, you mentioned these coping mechanisms as well that resonated with me. I don't have it in front of me, but you mentioned basically, from what I remember, it was people pleasing being one of them, rage being another one. I think there was a third one too. And what, where do these coping mechanisms come into play? And you talk about how, how many of us just relive that trauma through these coping mechanisms. Yeah, so coping mechanisms are our best attempt at regulating ourselves. When we have an emotion, we do fall into a state of dysregulation. Our nervous system responds, and then we're left to figure out what to do with it, how to return ourselves to baseline. So the earliest, again, this all goes back in time, we are so receptive as childhood that it's the really the earliest attempts that we began. A lot of it's what's modeled to us. So we might have had parents who explode out when emotions get too much, right? That rage, we might have the other category. We might have people that dissociate or detach, right? Through substances or other distractive things. So what a coping mechanism is, again, is our best attempt to regulate our emotional, or our nervous system dysregulation. Again, same thing with that archetypal example, what we learn early in life, we repeat. So then we become the adult who continues to try to regulate ourselves through that same mechanism. Right. One of my favorite chapters of the book was the trauma body chapter and really looking at this and its connection to like what you said, like where our worlds really collide and it's such a pivotal part of the same coin um, and this bi-directional relationship between trauma, thoughts and emotions and the physiology. Can you talk about what the trauma body is and explain its connection to the cytokines and the inflammatory components? I love how you asked this kind of segueing because all of these coping tools, most of these coping tools are stored in our body, are stored so deep in our subconscious that they're operating outside of our awareness. So we, by the time we get to adulthood, I'll use myself as an example, as someone who dissociated when emotions were way too overwhelming in childhood without an adult figure to help me co-regulate or help me come back to baseline. I just, as I say it, I went away on my spaceship. I did what I did best, which was I distracted myself. I tried to protect myself. So when I came into adulthood, 
all of this was happening outside of consciousness because it was all stored in my subconscious. So every time anything even mildly, possibly overwhelming happened, I had little to no choice. My body essentially dissociated itself. And then I would come back online and really have to deal with right the fallout of, of what had happened in my state of dissociation. Mm-hmm. So the trauma body, a lot of us are living in, in a state of dysregulation that originated in childhood where nervous system becomes activated. We don't have that caregiver to co-regulate, to bring ourselves back down to baseline, quite possibly because they're not in a baseline because they're so dysregulated. And then what happens is our body never relaxes into that parasympathetic state. And as you know, and I'm sure a lot of your audience knows, when we are constantly right in that sympathetic fight or flight mode, cortisol and inflammation is running rampant in our body. So I am the, the prototype of that. Um, my body was inflamed my whole life. That brain fog I mentioned earlier, I now understand was a result of brain inflammation. My anxiety and all of that kind of all was impacted by the fact that little did I know my body was never really in that parasympathetic baseline state. Mm -hmm. And again, all of this happens outside of our conscious awareness. And this is a large reason why back to those clients, I would see week after week, no one really was getting better. And this was even for the most insightful, right? For the the client who really knew what they were going to do the next time so that they don't dissociate. Unfortunately, their body was so dysregulated and all of this was operating so outside of their conscious awareness that it is one of the most disempowering places to be, to see yourself, usually retrospectively, having had those same trauma reactions. So Mm. again, back to that expanded definition, I believe a lot of us in the collective are living in some state of dysregulation in a trauma body that's, you know, because of that feedback loop from our body to our mind, continuing to keep us locked in those states now of mental dysregulation. Let's, let's connect all of this, the way I cope with it and then the way I cope and how that affects my relationships and the roles I play. And so we go repeating that same pattern that we've repeated since childhood, unable to create a new future. Yeah. So, so true. And it's something that I see clinically and you see clinically so much is that the impact that trauma, this, this broadened definition of trauma, the impact that has on specifically people with autoimmunity. I mean, you could talk about all types of inflammation problems, but specifically in autoimmunity, I find it interesting when you look at the mechanism of autoimmunity and this molecular mimicry, when the immune system actually turns against itself I find that very symbolic in many ways of how many of us are actually doing, turning against ourselves on a reliving our, our past on a mental, emotional level. And that's playing out physiologically. Yeah, absolutely. I call it self-betrayal, all of the ways that we're not honoring our authentic self. And so someone I highlight in the book that have actually become really near and dear to me um, is someone who struggled very early on in their 20s with you know, a, a increasingly escalating um, diagnosis of MS who now, you know, through nutritional intervention, her name is Allie, and which started with what I talk about, one small daily promise to help her combat her history of self-betrayal or not showing up for herself, as you beautifully put it, who's actually put her symptoms into remittance. So the effects are far and wide, um, whether you're someone who's resonating because you have that physical symptomology of this dysregulation that we're talking about, Or whether you're someone like myself who maybe just went down the more psychological route Mm -hmm. um, of the dysregulation, it's all the same. It all originates in that same underlying principle. 
Yeah. And you, on that same topic, you really expound upon the polyvagal theory, um, which I think a lot of my listeners will really enjoy learning about. Can you talk a little bit about polyvagal theory and its connection to what we're talking about with the trauma body? Yeah, polyvagal theory is is connected to to our nervous system, right? To that really core regulatory mechanism that we're all born with. Um, the vagus nerve is the nerve that really simply helps us shift from our sympathetic fight or flight, right? I'm going to deal with the stressor in front of me to then downshift to come back to that baseline that I was suggesting earlier that I never really came back to. Um, a lot of us, again, we lose our, what it's called vagal tone. We lose that ability to shift flexibly between the two. As humans who doesn't actually know what happens tomorrow, the uncertainty of the next moment, we need that flexibility so that while yes, most of us aren't living, you know, though some of us are in environments where there are risks right outside of our door, right? Life is stressful, the uncertainty of what happens next. So we need that flexibility to be able to shift, deal with the stress when it comes, and then to go back so our body system can digest and sleep and do all of that good stuff that many of us are lacking. So the vagus nerve is really important. And again, a lot of us don't have that flexibility and either get stuck if you're like myself in that sympathetic overdrive, fight or flight, waiting for the next shoe to drop usually looks like anxiety or panic attacks, which I've had both and, or getting really stuck in that hypo in that parasympathetic state, mm -hmm. depression, the no, the no energy, um, and the really lack of, so we need to learn. The beautiful part is that just like our, our minds, our brains are neuroplastic, our bodies are too. So we can actually train this nerve, our vagus nerve, to become more flexible, to kind of unstick us from whatever state we're stuck in and mm -hmm. to help us develop that flexibility to more resiliently cope with stress. I love that. And we'll get to this for everybody that's, that's wondering. I mean, the title of the book says it all, Do the Work. I mean, what Nicole's giving all of us uh, reading the book are, are these practical ways to gain resilience and start to heal from these traumas. So we'll get to that soon. But um, I, I'm curious to know your thoughts on just a professional level. People ask me this a lot. Is this the level of, of trauma-related health problems, whether it be anxiety, um, depression, fatigue, uh, inflammatory problems, digestive problems, and autoimmune issues, why do you think we're hearing about these things more and more? Why do you think more and more people are are coming about this, are noticing these are problems? Some people, uh, critics, will maybe tell me, well, it's because there are better labs or better diagnostics. And I think, of course, that's a part of it. We're looking at these things. And I think our parents' generation or grandparents' generation just didn't know this. They just struggled with this. But at the same time, I, I don't think that anybody's going to fully argue the fact that we are seeing these numbers grow by leaps and bounds too. So it's probably a bit of both, but I'm curious to know what your thoughts are, why we are seeing so much of this. I think another impact, in addition to everything you're saying, Will, is, you know, our lifestyle continues as far as I say it to remove us from our intuitive nature. I mean, if we really want to go back, as I think about, and I talk about often, back to, you know, our, our origins, the earliest humans, our ancestors, and how we lived. 
I mean, most of us can really simply look around and notice how different it is. Um, mm. And I just see that increasing year after year. So I think a lot of us are moving farther from our intuitive nature. We're living so disconnected from ourselves in cities, which in and of themselves are stress inducing. Um, we're not used to these loud noises. I mean, I've gotten, I lived in a city my whole life. I mean, uh, sirens might as well be my backdrop. It takes me coming to a place like this where it's now quiet for me to realize how unnatural that is and how dysregulating that is. Of course now, I mean, look at you and I, we're connecting virtually. Now we have a whole stressful virtual landscape that given COVID, most of us are spending most of our time with. So I think some of it is we're becoming maybe more attuned to ourselves. Maybe tests are getting, you know, an awareness and we have information now that we can map on to our experiences. And I think, again, we're just moving, most of us are moving further and further at really rapid speeds from our, our natural way of being as humans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautifully said. And I think in many ways there is, and I, I'd love to know your thoughts on this too, I do feel like there's an awakening that's happening collectively and individually where more and more people are starting the process of breaking those generational cycles of trauma and abuse and all that stuff that we're trying to undo. Do you find that to be the case as well? Absolutely. I mean, so back to just to kind of uh, wrap full circle my own individual journey, I did the work, I started to get better. I saw the online, you know, arena and I saw people beginning to share their stories. For me, in my own personal journey of healing, speaking my truth was really important. So for me, going online, developing the holistic psychologist account was really an exercise in my little, what I thought was going to be my little corner of the world, where <laughs> I was starting to share my new, new holistic theory on wellness, you know, and yeah. again, as an exercise in speaking my truth. Well, I would have had no expectation or anticipation that literally from day one, people that were meeting my work were resonating. So for me, that was evidence. Um, yes, I'm the messenger. I come up every day. I create the memes. I go online. You know, I do the work of it. But I don't take full credit. You know, I think that the message I've been sending since I created that account is one that is of a universal resonance. So for me, that continues to be indication of this universal waking up. And it mm -hmm. takes people like myself, like you, like everyone out there now very bravely sharing their stories. Um, not that every aspect resonates with every human, but all for some of us it takes is hearing one, you know, point of resonance um, that could open up just like me, that little door of question, of curiosity that then for so many of us have turned into a, an incredible healing journey. So once I started to see those messages of resonance pouring in quite literally from around the world, um, for me, that was kind of assurance that I was onto something, that this was important work. And, you know, at that point I, I, took the step fully into working fully holistically in this way. And like I said, I do think it's, it's really indicative of where we are as a collective. We're hungry for it. Yeah. So many of us are disempowered and have been relying on things outside of ourselves for far too long. And we're all, I think, finding our way back to true personal empowerment, which in my opinion, actually then heals the collective, changes us as a whole. Yeah. Wow. I mean, isn't it amazing this, this juxtaposition in a way where social media can be the source of endless anxiety inducing content and this FOMO inducing content, but you're using it like you're this corner of, of social media that people can go to and really be edified and be lifted up and be part of this positive community. I mean, you're this, we're talking millions strong of people that are 
learning from you. Is that, I mean, it has to be a lot to take in, right? It's, it's mind blowing. And, and so back to that, that, that exercise in speaking my truth that originates in, in a really core desire, as I think a lot of us have to be seen and heard for who I am and what I have to say. The other side of that coin to use language we've been using is fear is absolute panic is absolute. Don't, don't look at me. So a lot of my journey involves that conflict, walking through the discomfort of putting myself out there, even though it's something desperately that I, that my inner child, the language I use in the book, that my inner child, inner Nicole has always wanted. Um, though on the other side of it, there's many challenges. Why I keep doing it, however, is my way of equalizing acts of delivering this content and these tools, regardless of where you are in the world. And we do have quite an international community. Yes, you need a phone and you need access to Instagram. But for me, that's a delivery of information that might not have crossed these humans' eyes, that they might be living in a portion of the world where they don't have this holistic information or access to these tools. Um, So when I see, you know, as as anxiety-inducing as the numbers are for me, um, the other side of that, again, is knowing that these are millions now people who could just have their door of curiosity open that they they can choose to walk through and empower their, themselves to create change. Yeah. And I, I think that you and I are pretty much introverted by nature. And I, the, my team and I were talk about this. I say every console, I love what I do. It's my calling. It's my passion. I love people, but it is, I have to put in the work just to mm-hmm. just to have a consultation, just to talk to people, just to go on the Instagram live or something like that. Uh, is that what you're talking about by like having to like constantly check yourself with this? Yeah, everything from, you know, energy management when you're introverted and you open yourself up to another's energy, it mm-hmm. takes a toll. I mean, there's so many, you know, levels of it, boundaries then around that. What are my limits? Um, there's a very big part of me that my patterning from childhood was to show up for everyone else first. So I'm always aware of stepping over my own limits, right? Because whomever in front of me needs me at this moment, or I said I would. Um, So there's many kind of daily micro moments where I'm checking in with myself, with my resources, um, understanding that, yes, sometimes it's scary, but learning the difference between fear that I can tolerate and do anyway. um, And that maybe more intuitive fear that this isn't a space for me. A lot of us are you know, seeking, I get that question a lot. How do I know my intuition? It's practice. So I'm still met day in and day out with kind of finding my way through. And part of my journey is always a step I used to never take, checking in with myself. Um, So that's what I mean, whether it's, oh, I don't have the energy for this today, or, oh, that really impacted me. What happened when I spoke to this person or was on this live? And then obviously giving myself space on the back end. So it looks like many of those moments But like I said, that first step, which might sound really simple for people listening, oh, check in with yourself. I came to realize that my patterning was never to do that and how I engage with internet um, and how I get the work in general, knowing when I have the resources, um, knowing when I don't and how to navigate putting up boundaries and caring for myself, even when I know other people are looking to hear from me. Yeah. I mean, I think it's what you just said. I mean, I think many people are so divorced from their bodies because they're, they're, it's so easy to be distracted in today's time. They don't want to go inwards to actually work these things out. So uh, checking in with yourself, it is so simple, but it's, I think it's such a, 
epidemic problem of people not checking in with their bodies, not checking in with their energy field of like how they're actually feeling. So you're right. That's the practice that people need to put into. That's the work that people need to put into to, to build that awareness of what their intuition even is. Yeah, it's fascinating. Another fascinating part of the book is when you talk about the power of belief and the research is really compelling about belief and what that means and what that can do for somebody. Can you t- tell me about that? Yeah, I met the power of belief work um, when I was a non-believer. If I'm tr- if I'm honest, I was very <laughs> attracted. As, so the reason why I became a, a psychologist really is I had this intuitive just desire to understand, to understand people, to understand the mind. So very part and parcel, I was very fascinated with power of belief and those, you know, outlier stories that we hear of this person who healed this, you know, really detrimental illness or fatalistic thing. And now they're better. And I was so fascinated by that. Yet there was a really deep part of me that knew, oh, that would, that's not me. They have something really special in them that allowed them to overcome these odds. And it wasn't me. So I joke when I say I was a non-believer when I first engaged with that content, though I was, it was fascinating to read. Though I always kind of kept myself out. I always kind of knew or didn't believe that if I were faced with those kind of odds that I would be able to overcome until I, of course, began to do the work of healing, empowering myself to actually create change, understanding that all of the, many of the limitations I'd given myself were again in that old model that didn't have to be breaking down those barriers. And when I really dove into belief literature, this is what is fascinating with me. I came to realize what a belief really is. And how much weight many of us give it. And what a belief really is, as far as I see it, and as I define it, at least, it's a practice thought. It's a thought usually that originated based on our lived experiences. Typically, again, you guessed it, very early on in our life that begins to be kind of validated by evidence, right? So something possibly that was once true or we imagined true, we then often, unbeknownst to ourselves, outside of our conscious awareness, repeat it and repeat it. And then we have a, an interesting little part of our brain that's called the reticular activating system that actually helps us out. We become a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. So what the RAS is, or the reticular activating system, it's a gift in, in, in many ways. It helps us filter out our daily stimuli because the reality again of it for us as humans is there's too much. We can't attend to everything that's happening in our given environment in any moment. So our brain, again, outside of our awareness, has to decide what is relevant to us and what isn't. And again, what becomes relevant to us is what is most alive, what is most practice. So then before we know it, so a belief that many of us share of unworthiness, something happened in our childhood, usually something consistently over time that led us to believe we're unworthy. And now our RA picks up, our RAS picks up on that. And before we know it, in any given moment, what it's doing outside of our awareness, it's filtering out all evidence of worthiness that could be equally present in our given environment, only showing us further confirmation of how unworthy we are. The person who didn't look at us, the text I didn't get back, and the list goes on endlessly. And then unfortunately, we internalize those beliefs. They become part of who we are. And then we're the adult who's marching around, right? Proving to ourselves day in and day out how deeply unworthy we are. So when we really understand what a belief is, and I go into it in my book and, you know, we could talk about core beliefs and exploring our core beliefs. We all have them. 
what they are typically, again, originated in childhood. And then they just became the filter through which we're viewing the world. So our work in adulthood is twofold. Understanding all of the filters, all of the beliefs that maybe aren't even serving us anymore. Maybe at one point they did and they don't. Maybe they were never ours to begin with. And so what we want to do is expand, and this is a daily practice, expand that filter so that over time we can come to believe something new. Mm. Wow. Beautifully said. So this daily practice, you gave us a lot of really important daily practices throughout the book. So after each section, you have these do the work sections where it's a workbook for us, for us to show up for ourselves. And if you don't mind, I'd love to highlight a few of them and maybe talk a little bit about them. And there's so much more in the book for people that want to know all of it. But one of them is building consciousness and it's the do the work section, building consciousness. And I love that you put this, I think one of the first ones you did, because it is so foundational and it's so important, but yet it's such a, something we're so divorced from people thinking their own, their own thoughts. They think they are their thoughts. So can you expound upon that beautiful work? Use the word that I use often when you hear me speak the word of consciousness, which is foundation. I don't believe change happens outside of creating consciousness. So going back again to week after week with my clients, those insightful conversations that we either have with ourselves, with our loved ones, with our therapists come from a different actual part of our mind comes from the part of our mind that we don't share with any of the animal kingdom, our prefrontal cortex. It allows us to have insight, to think about thought, to use our past experience to inform our future choices. We have all of these amazing capabilities. That's where we can gain all of these insights. I can see how I'm causing my same problem or perpetuating it in my current life. And I can see a new plan of action, something I'm going to do differently so that I can break that habit moving forward. However, what I came to realize when that thing happens in really real time, most of us aren't in that conscious part of our mind. We're actually operating from that word I said earlier, that subconscious, that autopilot that many of us are, if either heard, oh, we live on autopilot. And again, the the stats differ whether or not upwards of 80, 90% of our day, the large reality is a lot of our day, most of us aren't consciously present making new choices. That's where all those habits and patterns live. That's where all of that dysregulation, right, coming from that out of conscious awareness that's always scanning our environment is coming from. And unfortunately, no amount of insight. This is why I, I, I saw myself and so many of my clients unable to make that bridge from insight into consistent action because that power of the subconscious is so strong. And many of us aren't even aware that we're living from that autopilot. So creating a new foundational practice, because that's what it is. We're firing up our brain in a new way. Mm-hmm. We're teaching new neurons, right? To fire and wire together and all the things. We actually have to do a little mental, you know, kind of training to learn how to be conscious participant in our daily life. Because now the next time I see that road to that old reaction, which is going to be right there, a lot of us, and myself included, we're waiting for that magic elixir. Oh, I have the insight. So I just flip the switch and away goes all of that bad habit. Absolutely not. We have to be so consciously present that we can see that old pathway and all of the discomfort that maybe I'm feeling in my body and that old coping mechanism that's tagging, tugging me to check out. Mm -hmm. And I have to consciously make a new choice. So in my opinion, 
change doesn't happen without a foundation of consciousness. You'll see it as the first activity um, in, in the book. And if you are someone like me who resonated with that, with the state of dissociation or being disconnected from your body, if you don't know how your body feels, if you hear me talking about energy in your body and emotions and you what, what body I'm a floating head. <laughs> Chances are you need to learn how to yeah. drop into consciousness and how to connect with your body. Um, because you're probably like me and you're so disconnected. And unfortunately, this is where the journey of healing comes until we have that foundation in place, the deeper work of unpacking our wounds and understanding, you know, our inner child trauma and learning new coping mechanisms becomes virtually impossible. We're stuck in such a disempowered place because day in and day out, our subconscious is running, is running our, our show. Mm, Yeah. Powerful. And another one of the, the work sections, do the work sections is creating a new boundary which I think is very important for many people that are listening, from from me included. Uh, What does that look like? What's that practice that you want us to cultivate? What a boundary is, because this is not a word that I ever met in my personal life (laughs) or in my clinical training until I realized how I had none. A boundary is a limit, right? It's a separation point between me and someone else, right? Honoring that I'm an individual. I have a separate you know, body system that has different energetic needs, emotional needs. I'm different. Many of us lack those boundaries. And again, that we learned very early on, you know, Mm -hmm. because we either were modeled families or parents and caregivers who didn't have boundaries, or again, to keep ourselves connected to the people that mattered the most, we had to step over our own limits. And then again, we become the adult like myself who says boundary limit. What? I have no idea what that is. So a boundary we have boundaries around everything, around our physical body and our physical needs, right? How much how much connection and touch feels comfortable to me that differs person to person. Mm-hmm. We have emotional boundaries. We have different limits in how much emotion we can handle and contain at any given moment and still come back to regulation. Um, and so there's many different limits. So many of us lack them. A lot of times we see their absence in our, in our relationships. Usually what it turns into somewhere down the line Someone who lacks boundaries becomes someone in a relationship who's incredibly resentful. I myself know that I went through life tending to, like I said earlier, everyone else, putting everyone needs in front of mine for so long. You know who I was never mad at though? Myself. I looked at all my relationships, many of which I would leave if they were romantic partners, citing all of the ways, right, that they weren't enough for me or didn't show up. Little did I know, and I became resentful of them to the extent that I would end relationship even. Little did I know that I had to look at myself, that I was the one who wasn't honoring my limits. I was the one who was showing up when I had nothing left to give. And then I was getting mad at the person who was on the other end. So boundaries are incredibly important. I dedicate a whole chapter um, to it in the book in terms of, you know, what they are, how to define them. And I even give, you know, scripts um, with how to begin to communicate our boundaries, um, because Mm -hmm. I know boundaries are one of the most difficult pieces of a healing journey um, and one of the most integral ones, because it becomes our safety. Mm -hmm. Back again to that state of dysregulation, if you are someone who is, right, in that state of overactivation, safety is incredibly important. So our way back to safety is to define new limits um, where we we tend to ourself and honor our own needs. Mm. So the show is called The Art of Being Well, and that's something that you 
I mean, that's your whole work. I mean, it's everything that you do and live for and what you wrote, wrote about in the book. But I'm curious, something that we haven't talked about today, if you could share what you wish you knew when you were that little girl growing up in Philadelphia, going through the things she went through, that you know now about this art of being well um, for everybody listening? I think well, just focusing on that word. Wellness was never a word that was spoken to me in my family. I have a family that has a lineage of, of physical um, chronic illness from my mom to my sister who you know, have had multiple hospitalizations dealing with actual illness. I knew that word, illness. Um, mm-hmm. I also knew it in the field, right? There are some people that were just quote unquote mentally ill, not my word or word used in the field, right? So never once did anyone mutter wellness to me. So even I, I, I loved when I was presented with, with the title of this, because for me, wellness was, was the biggest aha. Mm-hmm. The fact that I could even engage or entertain a conversation around wellness. So the thing going back in time would have been awareness of wellness and its possibility for, at least in my opinion, all of us humans. Yeah. Well, well said. So, I, I don't know. I think it was something that you posted recently before we go about how we should define something like PTSD. Um, what was that? Do you, do you remember what, what you said about how PTSD should be defined and what it actually is? Typically, when I talk about PTSD, I talk about that overactivation of our nervous system. Yeah, that's um, PTSD being the most extreme and the most obviously diagnosable. We learned about PTSD at a very early iteration of the DSM. Mm-hmm. Um, now we've expanded that a bit to see PTSD again originating in. Since you and I talk about what under you know what is the underlying mm-hmm. dysregulation, it's the nervous system. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's any and again, it's a spectrum. A lot of us identify in different areas of that spectrum with those symptomologies. Mm-hmm. Um, but what any of those, you know, quote unquote disorders are mm-hmm. is an overactivation of that nervous system or of that trauma body that I believe can be healed. We can learn how to drop into our bodies, learn when our bodies are starting to fall out of regulation and learn how to bring our bodies back. So what we once thought was a lifetime um, diagnosis that again, we could only talk about managing symptoms to get by. I believe that it is a function of our nervous system doing what it's meant to do, um, that we can help along to come back into wellness. Mm, Beautifully said. Nicole, I love your spirit. I love your heart. I love your work. I'm so excited that we got to talk on this show. (laughs) Same. Thank you so much for having me. And like I said, seeing people like you putting this work out, teaching people how to be well um, was so much, so impactful in my own journey. So thank you. Thank you. Wow. What a human being. She is a wealth of information. And I, she's one of the Instagram accounts that I follow all the time. And it really just edifies my life. It lifts me up in a social media vortex that can be filled with a lot of negative energy, a lot of FOMO-inducing content that does really harm to our mental health. The Holistic Psychologist is a place of light for sure. So check her out on Instagram if you if you are living under a rock and don't already at The Holistic Psychologist on Instagram. And you can check her out, her website at yourholisticpsychologist.com. And please pick up her book, How to Do the Work, Recognize Your Patterns, Heal from Your Past, and Create Yourself. At the end of every episode, I'll be answering a question from one of you guys. Nothing is off limits. Ask me anything. 
and you can send your questions over to me on Instagram or Facebook. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies, wellness trends, and ways to approach overall mental, emotional, and physical health and well-being. Thanks for those. And I'm looking forward to seeing what else is on your mind. All right, now it's time for another Ask Me Anything. Today's question is from Michelle. Hi, Michelle. She said, as far as gut health is concerned, what is the difference between dysbiosis and SIBO? And how could you know if you have one or both of these? All right, great question. A lot of times those two terms, dysbiosis and SIBO, are conflated. And for good reason, um, let's break it down. I mean, what we're talking about here for people that don't know what Michelle's talking about or asking. We're talking about gut health or gastrointestinal health. And we have our small intestines. We have our large intestines. We have all these trillions of bacteria in largely supposed to be in our large intestines. So we have, depending on the study that you look at, we have about 100 trillion bacteria. And to put that into perspective, we have about 10 trillion human cells. So you are, me too, uh, we all are, are about 10 times more bacteria than human. It's sort of this sort of this sophisticated host for this microbiome metropolis, all these trillions of colony forming units, different neighborhoods of good bacteria uh, that make up this massive city within us. And Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine, you know, every doctor takes a Hippocratic oath. He said, all disease begins in the gut. And now research is catching up with antiquity that the majority of health problems that we face as a society today, at least to some degree, have gut components in the scientific literature. If you look at PubMed and all the research that's been coming out over the past 10, 15 years, you're going to see a lot of research connecting gut health, gastrointestinal health to a whole host of different issues like uh, autoimmune problems. This is 75% of our immune systems in the guts so when you're dealing with autoimmune issues or inflammatory problems, which are product of the immune system. You want to look at where the predominance of the immune system resides. So autoimmunity, 95% of serotonin is made in the gut and stored in the gut. And there's a whole field of research looking at what's known as the gut-brain axis. Our gut is actually formed from the same fetal tissue as the brain. And if you think about it, the intestines kind of even resemble the brain a little bit. It's known as the second brain in the research. And the microbiome, all these trillions of bacteria and yeast and, and things that live in the gut are uh, linked to influencing neurotransmitter production and uh, are linked to things like anxiety and depression and fatigue and brain fog when your gut isn't so healthy, when your second brain or your gut isn't so healthy, that can influence your actual brain. Hormonal problems, um, 20% of your thyroid hormone is converted in the gut from T4 to T3, um, metabolic issues, uh, insulin resistance, many type of chronic health problems have their roots in the gut. So you don't necessarily have to have overt extreme digestive symptoms to have underlying gut components to your health issues. And that doesn't mean that everybody has health problems. It doesn't mean that it's the magic cure-all for everybody. So you want to definitely be open-minded and do your due diligence to look at all the components. But this is definitely a component to consider since it's so well linked to so many different health issues. So Michelle's question, she was asking the difference between dysbiosis or SIBO. So all those trillions of bacteria in the gut that I mentioned, this gut garden, if you will, is home to all these beneficial trillions of beneficial probiotics or beneficial colony forming units or neighborhoods of these good bacteria that regulate your hormones and digestion and inflammation levels in your brain, all that stuff. But dysbiosis, if you break that word down, bad growth or bad life, 
it's overgrowth of opportunistic bacteria or pathogenic bacteria. These are things that are oftentimes like gram-negative bacteria, which can be higher in what are called lipopolysaccharides or LPS, which are these bacterial endotoxins that are fine in lower levels. We all have gram-negative bacteria. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But when you have an overgrowth, these are like weeds overgrowing in this gut garden. That's a problem. Uh, it's a lack of the Goldilocks principle, not too high, not too low, but just right. This is everywhere thing in the body. Inflammation, you don't want too low inflammation or too high. You don't want hormones to be too high or too low. Same with your gut microbiome, all the good bacteria and yeast and overgrowth are these sort of weeds that can overgrow in this gut garden. That can raise like these lipopolysaccharides, which can raise inflammation, increase intestinal permeability, or things passing through the gut that shouldn't be able to pass through the gut, which can trigger inflammation systemically. Uh, going back to Hippocrates, all health problems or all disease begins in the gut. And that conversely, all health can really be influenced when you really focus on the gut, at least a component of it. Not that, to say it's the totality of everybody's problem, but it's definitely a piece of the puzzle for many people. So dysbiosis doesn't take into consideration location. It's just overgrowth in the, in the gut. And the second part of your question, Michelle, how do you know the difference between this and SIBO? Well, dysbiosis is found typically on a stool test because it's looking at the landscape of all the different types of colonies of bacteria. SIBO is an acronym that stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. This is a specific type of SIBO. This is a bacterial overgrowth actually growing from the large intestine into the small intestine, which can impact a lot of things. SIBO is associated with different autoimmune issues. Some researchers even consider SIBO to have an autoimmune or inflammatory component in and of itself. But regardless, it is associated with other autoimmune problems as well. And it's also linked to things like IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, chronic constipation, whether that be IBS-C or IBS-D with looser stools. It's associated with acid reflux and many other, other types of inflammatory health issues. All SIBO is a type of dysbiosis, but not all dysbiosis is SIBO, meaning you cannot diagnose somebody with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO from a stool test because you it's a stool test. You don't know if the bacteria overgrowth is in the large intestine or is it actually growing into the small intestine. A SIBO test is diagnosed through a SIBO breath test to measure the different types of, of SIBO. So you can me measure hydrogen or hydrogen sulfide or methane dominant uh, types of SIBO. So typically you would need a stool test and a SIBO breath test to really get the nuance of it. So hopefully that answers your question. Both are not good. Uh, both need to be addressed. And these are things that I address with patients around the world. We drop ship the labs to them and then design a protocol to address these underlying gut problems. So there you go, Michelle. Hope that answered your question. That's it for today. Thanks again for hanging out with me. I would love to know what you think about the art of being well. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to drwillcole.com slash podcast. I'll be back again next Thursday. And I hope you will too. Talk soon.